Welcome to the Action Catalyst, where we share inspiration and insights to help you get moving, overcome mediocrity, and move toward achieving your goals in life. From Nashville, Tennessee, this is Dan Moore, your host, partner with Southwestern Consulting and president of Southwestern Advantage. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. This is Dan Moore, and I feel very privileged today to be interviewing a very, very good, longstanding friend, Debbie Turner. Debbie's a recently retired media executive who for the last three decades has worked in an industry of abundant and rapid change, and that is broadcasting. For 15 years, she was president and general manager of the CBS affiliate in Nashville, Tennessee. And during her leadership, the station grew to be the number one position in the market, receiving numerous awards, both regionally and nationally for journalistic excellence. Now, one of the things that's really interesting is that Debbie started with an accounting background. She didn't come in with general management training or experience elsewhere. And I'm gonna have her share a little bit about how she worked her way into that role. Now, during her tenure, the station was was sold twice, and each time she had the opportunity to stay and build under new ownership. With Journal Media, Debbie was promoted to run the entire TV group, and then when Journal merged with Scripps, she became VP of TV Operations. That meant she was responsible for 33 stations in 24 markets. Somehow along the way, she also found the time to be very active in the Nashville community. She served on and led many nonprofit boards and at the national level, has been involved with several industry organizations, including the CBS Affiliate Board, and was named to the Board of Directors of the National Association of Broadcasters Education Foundation. Debbie's married with two grown children and two grandchildren. And Debbie Turner, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Thank you, Dan. It's so great to be with you. And like you said earlier, it's amazing. It sounds like we're just sitting next door having coffee together as we sometimes do. Absolutely. I think it's just great. Well, Debbie, I know you started uh, in college. You went to William and Mary and studied accounting. Can you share just sort of some of the steps that, from the time you finished your your accounting degree, and what led you to get involved in media? Because that's not always a common direction people take. Sure. No, I think that's a great question, Dan. I'm actually going to uh, rewind even a little bit further because I actually graduated from high school in three years and was all set to go to college and spent the summer before my uh, college start as an employee with an upstarting company in retail that was opening stores up and down the East Coast. And I had the opportunity to work in what was then personnel and realized I just loved the action of retail and opening a store and decided, you know, I think I want to do this for a while. And so I went home and told my parents, you know, that scholarship I have to college, I'd really like to hold off on that. And you can imagine, um, I, I understand that a lot better now as a parent. I didn't quite understand it as a kid, why they'd be upset, but um, that's what I did. So I worked for a few years in retail opening stores and thought I was a big deal, you know, making $20,000 a year when my friends were, you know, poor and in college. And I woke up one day about two years later and thought, you know, this has been really fun. And those people that I've looked up to are really cool people. But when I'm old and 40, those aren't the people I want to be. So 
I went back home with my tail between my legs and said, thanks for the opportunity uh, to let me do what I wanted to do, mom and dad, but I am ready to go to college. So I went to William and Mary and I majored in accounting, not because I had any real desire to be an accountant, but the friends of mine that did go to college right out of school um, that were majoring in accounting certainly were employable. And they were going to work in you know big cities and working for major accounting firms and uh, seemed like they were on the road to success. So I uh, put my head down and worked hard and became a, a CPA in three, uh, three years at William & Mary and went to work for Price Waterhouse in Norfolk, Virginia. And the way it's supposed to work, or it did back then, is get to know, you know the variety of clients that you have the opportunity to work with in the auditing field and determine which one of those, if any, you feel like is a match for you. And Landmark Communications, it was a privately held media company, family owned in Norfolk, Virginia, and that was my largest audit client. And they were the kind of people and kind of company I knew was going to be a match for me. They were ethical, they were upstanding in the community, they were philanthropic, and they had a an understanding of what media should be. And you look fast forward, right, 30 years, and we talk so much now about what the media is or is is claimed to be. These guys had it right from the beginning. So it was a match for me, and I worked really hard to uh, get well-known with the corporate staff and had the opportunity to go work on their team, gosh, in 1990, on their corporate staff doing system integration. So that gave me the opportunity to go property to property and get to know even better the differences between newspaper and radio and television. And they had also just recently launched the Weather Channel. So it was just a great time to uh, to start in the business and certainly a great company to start with. Well, that's already an amazing insight that you had the maturity to look at not just what the job would entail, but the kind of people and values that you wanted to spend your time with. Absolutely. Ethics is, as we probably go through this conversation today, will come up, you know, as, as the key pinnacle for what's important to me. I have no desire ever to uh, mix in the gray. It's black and it's white with respect to decisions that are made for the community, for the business, for your people. You've got to be, you know, ethically sound, which I know you are as well in, in leading your company. Well, it's something that we all strive for, and we've all had good role models, haven't we? That helps a lot. It certainly does. And you know what, Dan? Some of the role models that weren't so good um, really stand out in my head as excellent role models of what I don't want to be as well. <laughs> good point. It's uh, sort of inspiration in reverse. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think it's good. Well, so you had a chance to visit the different properties because they were involved in different channels of media. What, what actually led you to come into Nashville? And, and did you start there as the president and general manager at the CBS affiliate? So the reason Nashville came onto the uh, radar was Landmark was purchasing the uh, CBS affiliate here in Nashville at that time. And with my accounting background, they put me on the team to do due diligence. And I came down and spent mm, several months back and forth from Norfolk to Nashville um, working on the acquisition team. And it was exciting and it was a new opportunity. And they were looking for a team of people to be able to come into the station and 
what I would call landmarkianize the station, right? Embed it into the culture of what landmark was at the time and is currently to make sure that um, we made the transition and made it well. So I was not the general manager. I came down in a business manager role, which was kind of a number two role and worked under a general manager who had experience in the business and was with Landmark Corporate as well. And that gave me the opportunity to learn TV, right? Because, I mean, I knew I wanted to run a business. I didn't know the intricacies of television. Now, many businesses, you know, business skills are transferable from one company to another, one business, one industry. But, you know, there's also intricacies to, you know, television that are different than, say, running a grocery store i.e. the FCC is very important in your life and you need to uh, learn how to make sure you're, you know, operating within the regulations of our uh, federal communications division and things like that. So I spent a great number of years, uh, gosh, probably about eight in variety roles growing into the general manager role. So it probably took me, I'd say about five, six years before I became station manager and then another couple after that, <clears throat> before I had the opportunity to become general manager. Mm-hmm. So you really worked in all the different roles, learned the ropes, knew the people, and then at the same time, helped very significantly to integrate and make the landmark culture a part of what happened there at, at uh, News Channel 5. Absolutely. And that sounds, you know, making a culture, you know, may sound easy to, um, you know, people that haven't done that. This was a station <clears throat> that was run by a general manager in a company that was very um, different in leadership style. The prior general manager was what one would call somewhat dictatorial, uh, made all the decisions inside the station. Um, they would joke um, after, after we took over that he even would, you know, order the toilet paper and what brand and what quantity and when they were going to have it. So a big difference when you're trying to make a collaborative culture and one at that point in time really focused on continuous improvement and elimination of waste and you know more of what the GE culture was back in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because with the existing staff that you had at the station, many of them had really bought into or had grown very familiar with the former leadership style. Uh, what, what were some of the sort of lessons learned there about how to help people adjust to a new world? Because definitely it was a new world for them. It was a new world. And it wasn't their fault, right? This change was being, you know, happening to them and they didn't ask for this change. So I'll tell you about the very first day that uh, we got the keys to the castle and, and actually owned the station. I went back to the lady that was the controller at the time. And she had been with the company for, you know, probably 30 plus years and appeared to be a very nice lady. And I'm sure she was. And I walked back and I said, you know, Miss Carrie, uh, you know, being the very respectful young thing, because I was young back then too, right? And I always want to show respect to people that have been there longer than me or know more than me. And I said, Miss Carrie, I am so looking forward to working with you, you know, through this transition. And she looked up, looked me dead in the eye and said, I have no desire to work with you. You may leave my office. Oh, my goodness. So I went back to my office and thought, okay, (laughs) at least I know where I stand. And so I needed then, of course, to get people that worked for her to understand that they were going to be working with me for me, however you want to look at that over time, and not do anything in the world to 
let them think I was being disrespectful of her. So she actually gave me a huge favor in letting me know exactly how things stood. So it took, you know, it took finesse with not only her staff, but it took finesse throughout the building because here's something from a transition that I would give advice to any of your listeners. The prior leader, i.e. in this case, the general manager and president of the company, stayed for, gosh, I'd say six months as part of the part of the transition deal, part of the deal of the sales structure. Mm-hmm. And that's just not healthy. Um, it was tough to have two competing forces inside one building when you're trying to make a change. Maybe a short amount of time, and even that I wouldn't think is, uh, you know, is, is it's just hard on the team. They don't know how to be loyal to the person that they've been loyal to for all these years. But they also know for their own success, they need to be, you know, start being loyal to their new ownership. And so that was a real tricky period, not only for the new general manager and myself trying to bring in the landmark culture, but also for the people that didn't know, you know, they felt like they were playing, being played tug of, tug of war with. So mm-hmm. tough time. But, you know, to specifically answer your question, you've got to do it in such a way that it's so respectful to the prior regime and respectful of the people and give them a chance. Because like I said, it's not their fault. They, they didn't ask for this, right? And they had um, worked hard to, you know, have the jobs that they have. But at some point also, Dan, they also, once the transition is made and the prior general manager did leave, you know, at some point, you know, you have to call it, okay, it's game time. And it is time for people in certain situations to make a decision of, do you want to get on board with a new company? Certainly going to give you time and help to get there. But at some point, if you can't do it, you know, it's probably best you get off this boat and, you know, find a different boat to sail with. Right. Because if people have got one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat and the boat's moving, there's only three options. They either get on the boat, they stay on the dock, or they get all wet. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not good for the organization if everybody's wet. No, that's very true. Well, if I can dig into that a little bit deeper, Debbie, how, how did you build those relationships with the former controller staff without undermining the former controller, re- keeping that respectfulness? Uh, because it sounds like there was a lot of territoriality and a turf war potentially could have erupted there. So, you know, she was good at her job, Dan, and that made it a, it made it a lot easier because it wasn't like she was unethical. Again, there's that ethics word. Um, it's not like she was devious. She just was hurt, right? So I respected that and understood that the team was going to function just fine. But what they did need to know is the new systems, right? They needed to learn landmark systems, accounting systems, payroll systems, HR systems, all of that. So I was able to play a role in, um, you know, kind of neutral territory, right? You got to learn this stuff. I'm going to be the one here to help you learn this stuff, but I'm not going to change the way you already operate. You know, this person still has their job. This person still has their job and you can still, you know, report to Miss Carrie and that transition is going to end at some point in time. And I knew that. So I was very patient and I think they saw pretty early on, very early on, that um, that I was going to be a respectful leader and not, you know, be antagonistic or demeaning to current leadership. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's remarkable because not only did you show patience, but your level of empathy is off the charts. You know, there's so many times when an acquiring company comes in, they just lay down the law. You know, this is how we're doing it now. There's a new sheriff in town, blah, 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 blah. But leadership is all about really securing the voluntary cooperation of people. And that's something that it seems like your empathy, as well as patience, as well as competence helped you do. I think I think I appreciate that. And I, I think that's true. And that helped me then build the relationships that I needed as I grew with the company as well and expanded um, into various ends of the operation. And particularly, you know, being that accountant, when the day came that I was handed the, the you know, the, the title of president and general manager, um, nobody all of a sudden on the sales end of things was cheering down the hall. Now, I know sales is your expertise for sure. And, you know, you have a sales background. So people certainly immediately respect the fact that you've got that, you know, you've got that gig covered. When you're a CPA, you don't get that flag flown immediately. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I had a lot of work to do on the sales end, end of things to garner the respect of that team to uh, get the fact that, okay, yeah, she's a CPA, but let's not just immediately put a big red X over her head that she can't you know, meet with clients and achieve goals on the sales end of things as well. Mm-hmm. And that same challenge can erupt regardless of whether you an accounting person now trying to lead salespeople, it can go the other way around. You know, people that are sales and marketing types dealing with operations, IT uh, can have very similar challenges unless they take the same empathetic approach that you took. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was interesting. There were, there were a few challenges as I you know transitioned into you know, the leadership of the company. It was a very male dominating, uh, dominated industry and company particularly in operations and engineering. And I had one gentleman point blank say to me, I'm not working for a GD female. Mm. And I'm like, okay, well, we have a little problem here. (laughs) And, you know, it went back to the, you know, the same thing of actually like the Miss Carrie situation. I'm like, okay, David, you've got two choices here. I'm going to be, you know, running the station and I'd like you on my team but you have to make the decision of being on my team as well. And again, it took several conversations and, you know, some closed door meetings. Um, And he eventually came around and was one of my key supporters. I think that's tremendous because again, a lesser person without the vision that you have would have just put the hammer down and said, then you're out of here. Realizing that all that would have solved the immediate problem, it would have created a big hole that then was going to have to get filled, that there was no one there to fill it. That took a lot of, a lot of class and a lot of uh, courage and a lot of long-term thinking on your part. Well, and probably a good couple of glasses of wine when I went home that night, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's the chapter in every management book that gets cut from the editing room. So, yes. Exactly, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Now, um, at the same time that this was happening, in other words, you were bringing a new culture in, you were advancing into general management. There was a very enormous trend going on called internet broadcasting. In other words, you in the 90s got involved in this. And when the World Wide Web erupted on the scene where everybody else could start looking at it, it was in the mid-90s. And once again, the death knell of broadcasting was being announced all over the place. Uh, how did you keep your eye on the ball in terms of the day-to-day operations, the need to get the numbers there, keeping your staff humming along, getting the news out 
several times a day, getting the programming right, dealing with Landmark, and at the same time, understanding that this tidal wave of change was coming. So it was an interesting time, that is for sure. And being a privately held company, we only had two television stations. So there, as, as we would put it, as we'd sit around the leadership team table, we are they, meaning there was nobody, you know, all these smart people sitting around a corporate table somewhere telling us what to do. That wasn't the case. We, we, were, we, we were they. And we didn't know that there were, you know, obstacles in our way. And we went about building an internet business that really was fun, Dan. If, if I could go back into time, I would relive that one time and time again. We were trying new things, dealing with like streaming media long before streaming media was cool. In fact, we were one of the first um, stations to launch at the National Association of Broadcasters Convention in Las Vegas, streaming media back in, gosh, it would have been the mid-90s. Likewise, um, e-commerce. You, you can tell even by the URL that News Channel 5 has. You know, Many markets have a Channel 5 uh, news station. We have the URL, newschannel5.com. That shows how early on we were thinking about this. And we had people on our team that were just so doggone smart and so adventuresome and just so willing to try new things. Uh, I remember <clears throat> there was an election, and I can't tell you what year this was, but the person in charge of our uh, internet at that point in time wanted to switch um, to a different system. We had we had, had kind of a you know homegrown system at that point in time, and they wanted to go to a newly claimed um, system that was national called World Now. And I'm like, <clears throat> you know, I'm game to do this. But I need assurance that on election night, this thing's not going to crumble as results start coming in. And so the president of the company calls me and you know, assures me that this is all going to be okay. And of course, on election night, the system crashes. And I was on the phone with that guy until probably midnight. And by golly, Dan, he was here from New York the next morning on the first flight out, gro- not groveling, but also you know, apologetic was one thing. And I, I accept apologies, but, you know, things have to work when you're working for a company that, you know, your consumer base relies on you for news and information. And this guy got it fixed, got it right. And it helped him and it helped his company become better because it was able then to meet the needs of their consumer base far better than if I hadn't been loud, loud respectfully loud. Um, but I got his attention and boy, we never had problems with that company ever again. And the guy's now, you know, a good friend of mine and good, you know, business colleague. Mm-hmm. So you were able to keep a uh, presence of mind, even when the wheels were falling off at one of the most critical news moments that ever happens every four years. Yeah, exactly. So the internet, we saw it as, um, not an or, you know, and not TV or internet. It was certainly an and. And we really had a great group of people focused on making sure that uh, we utilized its capabilities as needed. I think also for us, one thing that's that gave us kind of a, a step up on the internet side of things is we had a second channel that we had launched locally called News Channel 5 Plus that was news and information 24-7 as well. And that one was harder to get people inside the station to get their arms around. 
to understand that this would be a niche channel for people that wanted information on certain topics when they wanted it. So people, by the time we got to the internet side of things, and they knew they were you know, broadcasting to a much larger, larger potential base, they got their arms around that one a lot quicker than they did the smaller niche operation. Mm-hmm. I think it's telling when you say that you treated the internet not as an or, but as an and, that it is going to be what we do, not something we fight against or pretend doesn't exist. That's an early mm-hmm. embracing of a concept that drove a lot of people out of business. Yep, you're absolutely right. And we worked hard at making sure that it was what we wanted it to be, which is a quality, was, is, was a quality product that consumers wanted. Now, fast forwarding to new ownership, um, both with Journal and with Scripps, things changed. And when you're with a bigger company, things are going to be very, you know, more cookie cutter-ish particularly in platform and that kind of thing. And boy, the, the outcry internally from the station employees for what they had built that then got changed um, was pretty hard for our people at that point in time to get their hands around because in their opinion, and I would have to agree, they were going to a product with you know maybe less personalization, less, uh, maybe less, overall quality than what they had personally built. That was hard. Mm -hmm. Now that casts you in a very unusual role because you were smack in the middle with your left ear. You're hearing, this is the way we do things here at journal, or this is the way we do things here at scripts or with your right ear. You're hearing your employees and team members saying, but why do we need to do it that way? It's not what we've done. How did you kind of keep both, both ears open and keep your equilibrium moving the big corporate objectives forward without losing your team. That was a tough one, Dan, I tell you, because particularly on the journal side, because that was our, our first venture into this uh, you know, corporate world of being publicly traded and more of a matrixed organization. And there was a day, right? <laughs> we, we no yeah. longer got to call all the shots. And that was exceedingly hard to, you know, to lead my team while also sitting on the corporate team. And boy, the gentleman that ran the internet division had no empathy at all for the local stations and basically thought you know, his, it was his way or the highway. And we had a lot of tough closed-door conversations where it didn't go real well. And I didn't necessarily get my way, but boy, you can be assured that um, he knew the areas where I thought we were deficient. Um, again, it wasn't personal, but gosh, you want a product that uh, your your consumer base wants. And I had a better feel for that than he did, but he just, he was in charge of the internet for the whole company. And the um, CEO said he was in charge of the internet for the whole company. So we wound up, in, at least in Nashville, losing market position as it related to the internet. And boy, that was, that was really hard to swallow. Mm-hmm. Which again brings to to another question, and that is, how do you keep the big picture in mind? In other words, somebody could look at a, a commandeering leader like that and say, well, just forget it. I'm either going to shut down, not be involved, or I'm going to rebel. Or you could take the position that you took, and that is to say, there's a bigger picture here. We've got employees that are depending on us. We've got a team counting on us. I guess mentally, how did you, uh, how did you keep your balance? Good question. 
So, you know, I, I always, if I err in any direction, I err on the side of tr- transparency with with my team. And you can't obviously throw your new ownership under the bus, but you can certainly, and I did, um, admit to the areas where things were not as good as what we had. But then also with a bigger company, there were things that were better than what we had. And so, you know, I'd have very candid conversations of pointing out, hey, this is better. This might not be, but this is. And also for a team of professionals that had only been with a group that had two television stations, this opened up the world of possibilities for advancement for the group of people that worked inside News Channel 5 as well. So, you know, it wasn't always pretty, but, um, you know, you painted the picture of the positives, you recognized what might be the negatives, and then you, you know, celebrate the successes of, you know, things that you can overcome. And the day that uh, we merged with Scripps and the, you know, young gentleman that uh, had been in charge of the internet was basically told, you're running a, you know, you're not doing the job well, and you're not going to have a job. Do you take pleasure in that? No, you don't take pleasure in it. But you know, it's a win, right? At some point when other people recognize what you already saw. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that shows your class as a leader, because you didn't gloat or take pleasure in it. But the realization that staying to what you knew was right, weathering that storm, eventually other people were going to do what was right as well. Exactly. A tough time to do. It takes a lot of confidence and a lot of conviction. So well done there. Thank you. So journal and then scripts. Um, and each time you were you were tagged to join the new company and to have a leadership role, which continued to grow, involved at one point you having to do a lot of commuting back and forth, Nashville to Cincinnati. I know that puts a lot of strain on a family. How how did you manage to keep your head in the moment instead of maybe where you emotionally wanted to be? and stay focused on the task at hand. I think everybody deals with that struggle. Sure. It, it certainly was kind of a, uh, you know, an odd thing for me at that point in my career, all of a sudden to be having an apartment in downtown Cincinnati and getting on a plane every Monday morning at 5 a.m. and coming home on you know Thursday or Friday night and not being a part of the day-to-day activities, not only in my own home, but in the city of Nashville where I had built such a um, community base. Mm-hmm. And um, it was interesting, Dan. It really was. I mean, I enjoyed it. I certainly appreciate the opportunity that um, my spouse gave me to do that, right? Because not every um, not everybody that uh, you live with wants you to go off every day, every week, and be gone. But uh, it took a lot of balance. It took a lot of good communication back and forth. And the one thing that I really focused on, and I bet you do this too, as much as you travel, and you travel far more than I ever did. But when I was home, by golly, by gosh, I was present. Mm -hmm. I made sure I did not come home on Friday afternoon and say, oh, my, what a tough week. I'm going to, you know, lay on the couch for the next 48 hours. I was present. I was accountable, accounting for and present, quality present in, you know, my kids were grown, but present in their lives and present where I needed to be at home when I was here. Mm -hmm. Um. Digging into that one a little bit, did you do any kind of a mental exercise as you would be heading home to get yourself into that right frame of mind, knowing you still had work pressure on you? 
Sure. Great question. Um, in yes, obviously, but in some ways, having a corporate role like that is a little easier in some respects on the family than running a television station 24 seven, running a television station 24 seven is just that you are, your phone rings in the middle of the night. Um, you know, you are, you are called back to the station for a variety of reasons. None of them are planned, right? It can be in the middle of, you know, your anniversary dinner. It can be in the middle of a birthday. It can be in the middle of anything. So the corporate role at least was a little more manageable for the most part on those unexpected changes. So from that perspective, it was a little easier on, on the family. Well, and what a lot of our listeners don't understand is that part of that role when you were in the TV station running the business was Nashville's largest flood in its history, which overflowed the Cumberland River by some 50 feet, including flooding your station. Yeah. Yep. So I got a call that morning bright and early. And for your listeners that don't know me, I'm one of these people that just love a challenge. I'm very competitive. And so when crisis hits, that's when... I'm in the mode of, you know, not dancing across the street, but I got my shop back thinking I was going to, you know, get a little water vacuumed out of the place and that we were going to be just fine. And so I skittered off to to the station, not really expecting what I found. And Landmark had actually just um, promoted a new CEO of the company, and that's a whole other story, Um, but I had never met him. And so I'd had a couple of phone calls with them. And so I'm at the station and honest to goodness, water is not necessarily coming in the building. It's coming up into the building. Mm. So what that means is the sewer system of Nashville was backing up into our station. And the station is a three level building built one level on ground on top level and then two into the ground. So what we were experiencing was water sewage rapidly rising into the building and threatening all the um, electrical components of the switcher and the newsroom and all that kind of thing. And boy, I tell you what, that was a day. And actually, it was more than a day. So I call this guy and say, look, this is the deal. I just need carte blanche to do what I need to do. And he he was he was not a broadcaster. He was not a CP. He was he was kind of clueless to what I was talking about. But yeah, I was given carte blanche. So I mean, Dan, I immediately ordered. You know, the people coming in, the restoration people, the people with the big tanks that can blow the stuff out of the building. And had we not been, you know, kind of like first in line on that, I think we would have lost the building. Mm-hmm. And in a news operation like that, the majority of the people, when you're in a twenty four seven broadcast. The people that um, are, you know, able to do the menial work and get stuff done are few and far between because you want everybody else focused on protecting the community and delivering the news to our our constituents that need it in order to be safe out there in the community. So I had on my, you know, big rubber boots and I'm hauling computers up from the newsroom, which is on the third floor, moving everybody up to the second and first floor where they could be safe in order to be able to deliver the news. We had one lady, God bless her, eight, nine months pregnant, 
And she too was trying to be, she too is competitive and she was trying to do all of this, you know, menial stuff, bringing stuff out of the newsroom. And again, as general manager, you're in charge of not only the business, but you're in charge of making sure people aren't hurting themselves and putting themselves at risk. And so we had to, you know, bench this lady and boy, it just about broke her heart, but you couldn't have, you know, a a future mom digging around in sewage. Likewise, we brought people in to, you know, have tetanus shots for people, you know, things that you just have to think about when you're in charge of many, many, many different things. But boy, it was, it was um, certainly an interesting time. I was also chair of the uh, community foundation board at that point in time. So I was wearing the hats of, you know, keeping the station going and then also working with the community foundation and Carl Dean and the mayor at the time on things that needed done for the community. So it was one of the most interesting and dynamic periods that I ever went through. And we actually, um, the station, um, all the local stations received an Emmy for that because of the hard work they did in keeping the community safe during that awful, awful time. Well, and it was unprecedented. We woke up early in the morning and naturally we tracked News Channel 5 to see how bad things were. And they were worse than anybody ever thought. But you kept it going and never lost it. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick aside if we have time for a quick story. So the guy that was running Landmark then at the time. Um, I got a phone call from him on that Monday morning. So this was Sunday, maybe it was Tuesday morning. And we had been at it at that point in time, probably about 48 hours, hadn't been home to shower, absolute mess. And this guy calls and says, Hey, I want to take the uh, corporate jet and come see your team. And I'm like, well, Jack, you know, this isn't, this isn't like a good time for us. We're still on the air. <laughs> you know, we're still, I mean, the building is in disrepair. I mean, we're going to have to rebuild much of the building, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought I had him understanding, you know, this is not a good time. So I put down the phone and I'm going back down into the, you know, filth to go take care of things. And I get paged and it's his assistant on the phone saying Jack will be landing on the private jet at 11 a.m. And he's bringing the HR head of HR with him. And they would like the helicopter to meet them at the airport and fly the helicopter into the station. I'm like, we don't do that. We don't have a helipad. (laughs) (laughs) And so sure enough, they did come. And they, you know, I mean, he was dressed to the nines. The lady was dressed to the nines. I mean, they just, it didn't fit what was necessary at that time, right? If you're going to come, at least be in your waiters. Look like us, right? Pull out a computer or two. But boy, this guy came in his shiny loafers and stayed for about 10 minutes because, I mean, it smelled and it was awful and he didn't have any fun. So that would be, that's the example of leadership. I would say, nah, not so much. (laughs) Oh my gosh. The little known stories and uh, and your ability to do that is just phenomenal. I know there was another time when Nashville had a tornado come smack through the middle of town and we were watching it through your camera on the roof of your building as the camera got blown off the roof of the building. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a day you don't want to, to be in charge either. But uh, yeah. And then afterwards, Dan, we were off the air for a fair amount of time, which actually gave our crews a lot of opportunity to go get some good footage. But um, when we came back on air, um, we actually... Um, were live from our transmitter site because we couldn't broadcast from the studio for your very, from the reason you you were saying is that we lost a lot of the dishes and transmission line off the roof. And as uh, 
one of the people in charge at that point in time, one of your jobs is to go survey the damage on top of the roof. And that was not one of the things I don't particularly like heights. And I certainly don't like heights in the rain when things are sparking and you know, <laughs> yeah. making fire when you're up there. So uh, the job entails a lot of different things. That's for sure. And that's all the stuff they don't ever tell you in broadcasting school. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, Debbie, if you haven't written a book yet, you realize you need to. You have so much to share and so much wisdom. Well, thank you. It's been a fun ride, Dan, that's for sure. I'm sure it has. I wonder if I could just ask you to to do your best to generalize. When you're faced with what looks like a brick wall, you can't find an opening. It's a business situation. You can't see over it, around it. You certainly can't go under right through it. Were there some mental adjustments or processes that you formed the habit of going through that enabled you to deal with apparently insurmountable obstacles that ultimately you you were able to surmount? Sure. I mean, there's there's a few different angles to that. Um, actual business decisions in the time, I certainly built a team around me of really smart people, smarter than me for sure, that um, felt comfortable challenging me and challenging any process that was out there. So collectively, we nine times out of 10 would get to a better place and get to a solution that worked. Um, that helped a lot. There were times, Dan, that from a career perspective, personally, that I, would, that I felt like I was hitting a wall. Um, again, a two-station group when, when it was a smaller company prior to being acquired, there weren't a lot of avenues that I could take to continue to grow. And I wanted to stay with Landmark. Um, I was given the opportunity to go run the Las Vegas station. And I thought, wow, you know, this, this is an advancement. What a market, that kind of thing. And I had those two beautiful children that you knew so well, mm -hmm. and I just couldn't do it. And I was scared to tell my boss at that point in time that, um, you know, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do this one. And I did that. And I actually got a note back from him very quickly. He was in Norfolk, great guy. And he wrote me a note and said, you know what, I admire you so much that you're making this decision for your family and for those kids and not just for you. And then I had the opportunity, obviously, to grow with the company. And so it was, it was a tough one, but boy, you know, every once in a while, you've got to look at the bigger picture and make decisions based on the whole whole picture of your life, not just one one narrow path. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase, the whole picture of your life, because that is absolutely true. Otherwise, you end up making big decisions in a one-dimensional kind of a vacuum that doesn't help you. Absolutely. How do you keep your sense of humor, Debbie? Because you, you have an excellent sense of humor. You also are highly competitive, intense, and focused. Um, how, how did you bring that to bear in terms of proper perspective when dealing with some of these major challenges you've had? You know, I've always, Dan, had um, the, the, the ability to see that, um, you know, we were selling, what's the line in um, that one movie? We're selling air, right? <laughs> we're selling air. <laughs> Um, and yes, TV, we're saving lives with broadcasting, you know, important information during, during storms and breaking news and that kind of thing. But we're not curing cancer, right? I mean, I'm not a researcher with the ability to save the world. 
And so I think I always looked at things from that perspective of, okay, this is important, but it's certainly, you know, it's not up there with, um, you know, the end of the world and saving the world and all that kind of great stuff. So I think I just always kept it in perspective. And I woke up every day, every single day of my career, happy to go do what I did. And I loved it. And I love now being home too. So I think I just look at life that way, like maximize every day, live life to the fullest and good is going to come. That doesn't mean you don't have to make choices along the way to, you know, make that happen. There were times, for example, that I felt like, you know, my career was dead ending a little bit. Well, you know what I would do? I would go do something else. I'd work with a nonprofit and make something happen there. I would, I went back to school. I went to Lipscomb and volunteered to be an adjunct professor for a while. You just change your path now and then so that you can get get affirmed, maybe in different ways than just being a general manager or just working in one position. You know, you have to you have to make your own destiny. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the do more and do something different while never losing track of your values and the main course that you want to be on. Exactly. Well said. I think it's great. When you do write that book, I love it. I woke up every day just happy to be doing what I'm doing. And it's still true now, even though you're in what you call retirement mode, but I would call it temporary rethinking mode because you're not going to ever be retired. <laughs> I think you're right. We call it a hiatus over here. <laughs> hiatus. I love it. Evie, this has been remarkable and uh, so much appreciate your time and your insights. Um, I feel edified and uplifted and ready for better things to happen in my day as a result of this. Well, thank you. Absolutely. I appreciate you, Dan. And I, I will say to your listeners, I wouldn't be sitting where I am today if it weren't for Dan and Maria Moore, who were part of the village that uh, helped me with my family and keeping me sane. So I love you guys to death. Well, absolutely. Right back at you, buddy. Well, thank you so much. Best to your whole family. And uh, let's roll on. Thanks, Debbie. Bye, Dan. Bye-bye. That was Debbie Turner, currently on hiatus from a 30-plus year career of distinction in broadcasting and communications and above all in leading people and building businesses. It was inspiring listening to Debbie. I think everybody could tell that Debbie comes through with several traits in terms of how she approaches business and life, most of all values. She spoke early on about how her parents very much wanted her to go to college, but also she wanted to pursue her own goals in retail, which she did, but then to be able to go back to her parents with humility and say, I really do want to go to college. It was values-driven in the sense of following her dreams, but at the same time being very respectful and appreciative of the opportunities that her parents wanted her to have. That was an early indicator of how she was going to drive herself throughout her career. One of the things that I was impressed with not only was her values, but her humility. You know, to be elevated into a position of general management and heading a station in what she described as a male-dominated industry could have caused her to become less humble and, in fact, to become arrogant. But she always saw herself as a team player, even when she was the boss, and that her respectfulness for people, combined with her natural competitiveness to get the job done, resulted in an empathy that galvanized people. Most of us in this call have been either through acquisitions or we have watched the process of acquisitions, and it can be very easy to lose the existing team entirely and to have a tremendous amount of disruption. Debbie had the sensitivity to take her time and pacing and figure out where do I really stand? I am the communicator of the new 
acquisition team. I'm also representing the team that's already here. And she chose the path of, I really want to work with you. I need your help. Let's do this together. While at the same time, knowing that there would come a decision point when people needed to get on the boat or not. So goal-oriented combined with empathy for people came through time and time again. I was also impressed with her ability to put things into the proper perspective. You know, she downplays herself when she says, hey, what we're doing is not really finding a cure for cancer. We're, we're basically selling air. Well, I think we all understand the value of communications and particularly in the media in our lives. And with all of the stress these days about fake news and media that misleads, to have somebody with that kind of integrity realizing that it is a communications medium that people depend upon, not necessarily for their daily survival, but certainly for their daily convenience. And sometimes in the case of disasters like Nashville's flood or the terrible tornado that ripped right through this, the station, they rely on the, the communications industry for, for well-being and information and to gain a lot of confidence. So Debbie, I think, underplays her role a bit much. Uh, she, in fact, was a dynamic leader and continued to be a hands-on person. Like me, I'll bet you you were really struck by the visual image of her leaving her home early in the morning with her rubber boots on to deal with what she thought would be just a small amount of water coming into the station. But the reality, it was the sewage system of Nashville backing up because of the immense flood of water that was coming in. Her quick reactions to get carte blanche to do whatever needed to be done and to grab the disaster recovery teams before somebody else did, while at the same time being sensitive to an employee that was eight months pregnant saying, no, you're not lifting boxes. You sit over there. You're not doing anything. And to keeping her head about her during that long period of time, even when a top executive was going to come visit at a disastrous time, uh, Debbie never experienced what many people would, would regard as perfect meltdown situations, but she didn't do that. Um, her empathy with people is really interesting. When the acquisition occurred of News Channel 5, and her first approach when she showed up there was to say, look, these people didn't choose this. This is happening to them. They didn't choose it. Uh, I want to get them on, on my team if I can. With the very harsh controller attitude that said, I have no interest in working with you. She took empathy. It was really interesting. Instead of saying, well, she was a loser. She was old school. Debbie said, quote, she was just hurt. She was just hurt. That position of empathy enabled her to have the moral high ground with people to relate to what their situation was, while at the same time talking about the new direction that was going to happen. She had to show great empathy in understanding the sales function. And we know that revenues from advertising and other means of, of generating sales are what absolutely drive stations. The sales team is critical in any adventure like that. And the people in sales didn't automatically cheer when someone from accounting became their boss. She had to win them over, which she did. Interesting, again, her attitude in the male-dominated industry. When somebody talked about no blankety-blank woman is going to be telling me what to do. But over a period of time, her strength of character, her understanding of mission, and her understanding of always doing what's right won that person over, which is just great. Uh, she understands the value of looking at opportunity from a, a broad lens. And instead of looking at the internet as a threat, she and her colleagues at Landmark said, this is an opportunity for us to be an, an and, uh, not an or. And the ability to move forward in that was so well. I was continually impressed with her um, nimbleness, I guess you could say, navigating new situations, new management, uh, much larger corporations as she moved up from time to time, and her ability to always be the liaison between the they and the us, and that that liaison role allowed her to honor the wishes of her corporate leaders, while at the same time gaining the support of those that were 
uh, perhaps not as nimble and able to adapt as quickly as she was. Uh, I was taken and wrote this down. My goal with people is always to err on the side of transparency. So in conveying change, she said, some things about this will evidently be, be worse than there were. Some things are going to be better. Let's look at a positive picture of what the opportunities can be here. And realizing that that's going to make such a difference in people's lives is having something that they can look forward to. When asked about balance, the very first thing she said was uh, support from home and having that support and how critical that was. But at the same time, she was a part of gaining that support because she made the choice of being present when she was at home and made a decision that that was always going to be important in her life. And she has done that consistently in such a great way. It was terrific just hearing her talk about that because it makes such a difference. In terms of dealing with those roadblocks and those brick walls that we face, the very first thing Debbie said was, I always believed in having a team of people around me that were smarter than I was. Well, there aren't too many people in the room that are smarter than she is, but she will never portray herself as being the one that's that's in charge in that category. Instead, she's a galvanizer of teams, realizing that a team can look at a problem that is a brick wall to one point of view and not necessarily a brick wall to somebody else and that that creates opportunity. But then she also realized that the biggest thing is to make values-based decisions. What's right? And in order to do that, a person has to know what their values are. In your team, in your organization, in your company, in your own mind, are those values clear? Because when we can make a decision based upon what's the right thing to do, then it doesn't become an argument about who is right. And so she always tried to make her decisions based on values and the whole picture of her life. So the opportunity to run a bigger, more challenging station in Las Vegas, very tempting from a career standpoint. But when she backed up and looked at it from the, quote, whole picture of your life, she made a different decision, which she felt good about that. Keeping things in perspective and keeping the humility. Uh, I love her daily affirmation. Almost sounded like an old Carol King song when she said, you got to wake up every day happy to be doing what you're doing. And she feels that way now. Uh, even though she's on hiatus, she's happy every day doing what she's doing. She also, throughout her career, spent time with not-for-profits, believing strongly that people that can't help themselves need that hand up from somebody else, and that whenever she was in a dead end or feeling like things weren't going well, she would apply herself to people that truly needed her help. She would do more in the nonprofit sphere. She would seek additional education. She would spend time with people that were uplifting. So these are some amazing themes that have helped a tremendous person move forward, lead, and influence others. I was highly inspired after this, and I'm sure that you were as well. So we want to thank Debbie Turner for her time today and for being such an encouragement to all of us. So let's keep these lessons in mind about perspective, about empathy, about how we can be very strong in the pursuit of our goals, while at the same time being a builder. And Debbie is a bridge builder, a people builder, an organization builder, and she continues to build a great life for herself and her family. So on behalf of the Action Catalyst, thanks all of you so much for being a part of this. And let's go forward and be builders as well. 